And I think one of the, the misthoughts about the ascension amongst us is that these guys had it so much better. If only Jesus could be with us today bodily, or if only I could have been back then so as to walk beside Christ, I would be so much better a Christian. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Making Sense of the Ascension from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, with Pastor Paul Twiss. What's your gut-level response to this question? Would you rather have Jesus in heaven or right next to you all day long following you around? Well, of course, we all think having the Lord of all creation by our side would be the best possible thing in our lives. What if God's plan for his son Jesus was otherwise for you? How can that be? In the second part of Making Sense of the Ascension, Pastor Paul details the importance and power from Jesus, not in bodily form alongside you, but advocating for you in heaven. Don't believe it? Here's the conclusion of Making Sense of the Ascension. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world has lost its mind recently. Identity politics contains within it some of the most illogical, unfounded lines of reasoning that mankind has ever dreamt up. And we're running with it. But you can play that game. And you can play it really well. Who are you? I'm a mediator of the exalted Christ. You can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. I am a mediator of the exalted Christ. We can look at his ascension and be greatly encouraged. Fourthly, Jesus' ascension reminds us of Christ's intercession. It reminds us of Christ's intercession. Luke records that while he was blessing them, he parted, and he was carried up into heaven. Again, it seems to be an incidental detail to note Jesus' destination until you consider the alternatives. Presumably, Christ could have risen from the grave and remained with us. That 40-day period could have extended. He could still be with us here today bodily, teaching us, encouraging us, rebuking us, directing us. And I think one of the, the misthoughts about the ascension amongst us is that these guys had it so much better If only Jesus could be with us today bodily, or if only I could have been back then so as to walk beside Christ, I would be so much better a Christian. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is as with us now as he ever has been. Why? Because he's in heaven, not resting, not doing nothing. But as Jesus ascended into heaven, his intercessory ministry began. The author to the Hebrews makes this plain. Chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Why? Because he never fails to make intercession for you. He never stops pleading your case. Jesus is praying for you hour by hour, day by day, and he does not fail. 
What's the substance of his prayers? Again, Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the end. He is able to get you across the finish line, meaning Jesus is interceding on your behalf so that you would keep going, so that you would make it to that finish line. First John chapter 2, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus pleads to a loving heavenly Father who does not begrudgingly receive those prayers, but willingly and joyfully hears them. Don't count this sin against him. Don't count this sin against him. Don't count this sin. Why? Because I died on his behalf. The intercessory ministry of Christ persists in your life to make you who you are today and to ensure that you will be there on the last day. Could there be a more encouraging thought when you have had few thoughts of Christ? He has been very mindful of you. When your hearts were not inclined towards him, he loved you. And when you did not think to pray, he didn't fail to pray. Now, I want to be very clear. If your faith has not found its resting place in Christ, if your trust, your hope, your confidence is centered on something else, your family, your marriage, your finances, your health, Jesus doesn't pray for you. The last book that John Owen ever wrote was called The Glory of Christ. He wrote it just before he went to meet with Christ. You would do well to read that book before you meet Christ. And he says in the opening pages, if you are satisfied with something other than Christ, he has no prayers for you. And I would just ask you this morning, why wouldn't you want your sins to be covered by his blood? And to know that he prays for you, hour by hour. If you put your faith in Christ, be greatly encouraged as you look at his ascension. Knowing and being reminded that that is the beginning of his intercessory ministry. Number five, the ascension foreshadows our exaltation. The ascension foreshadows our exaltation. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then verse 52, and they after worshipping him. So there's a turning point in the narrative here as Jesus ascends. Thus far, he has been doing all the action. Now Luke pans across to the disciples to note how they responded. And the first thing we read is that they worshipped him. The verb there means to prostrate yourself, to abase yourself, to lie flat on the floor, face down. It is the appropriate response of a subject before his king. The king enters into the room, you fall flat on your face. The disciples do a commendable thing here. And it's such a wonderful picture. The way Luke ends his gospel, the last time we see Christ with his disciples, is one wherein Christ is exalted and the disciples lay prostrate on the floor. The reason that's such a wonderful picture is because in many senses that encapsulates Luke's theology. Every gospel author has different emphases. They draw out different themes as they relate to us, Jesus' earthly ministry. One of the themes that Luke majors on is simply that God will exalt the humble 
and tear down the proud. It starts all the way back in chapter 1 when Mary sings her Magnificat and she says, God has looked upon my lowly estate. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. God has looked upon my humble, lowly estate, and in response, now all generations will call me blessed. God exalts the humble. A few verses later, she says, God scatters the hearts of the proud. He dashes the prideful. And that begins this theme that permeates all the way through Luke's gospel. That's why in Luke's gospel, more than any other, there is this emphasis on Jesus gathering unto himself the poor, the lowly, the outcast, the sick, the women. He keeps showing, I am elevating, exalting the poor in heart for whom you have no esteem, no regard. I will elevate them and the proud will be torn down. Of course, the primary example of this is Jesus himself. Lord of Lord and King of Kings, he comes as a lowly servant, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he treads out in Luke's gospel, the path of Isaiah 53, the servant. His life ends on a cross. And Paul explains that in Philippians when he says, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to obedience, to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, because of that humiliation, God has raised him up and given him a name above all other names. That is ascension theology. And it is given there in Philippians 2 for our example. Now, the disciples, they're a strange bunch. They don't understand it. They don't get it. They're with Jesus face to face, and they struggle to buy into this logic. So they ask, can I be at your right hand? They say, who's the greatest amongst us? To be perfectly clear, if you and I had been there, we would have been doing exactly the same thing. But then, in a wonderful way, the closing picture of Luke's gospel is when the disciples finally get it. They drop down on the floor, face down, the exalted Christ and the humble disciples. And that is where they spend the rest of their earthly lives. Throughout the book of Acts, never once again does pride creep in. It's not an issue anymore. They boldly, with all humility, proclaim Christ ready to die for something other than themselves. How? How is it that they can persist with such humility? Because they understand that their present-day humiliation foreshadows, anticipates their eventual exaltation. They look at Christ ascended and they know one day I too will be by his side. So I can humble myself this day. Again, in years gone by, the church had a much clearer understanding of this. It wasn't that long ago that we used to celebrate Ascension Day. Forty days after Resurrection Sunday, the church would put aside all other things and celebrate, commemorate, Think upon Christ's ascension. In the 1700s in London, there was a very interesting practice on Ascension Day. Thousands of orphans would be gathered from the various orphanages in London. They would all be gathered together. They'd be washed, scrubbed down, and then they would be clothed in brightly colored clothing. 
And then these thousands of orphans would be led through the gray and dreary streets of London to St. Paul's Cathedral. And if you've ever been to St. Paul's, you know the architecture is such that the huge dome at the top just captures the sound and it just keeps reverberating around. You can go up into the dome and you can whisper against the wall and your, your voice will travel all the way around back to you. So these orphans, brightly dressed, would be led to St. Paul's and there they would form a choir. They would sing of Christ's exaltation. William Blake wrote a poem about that. And he pictures the orphans walking through the street of London as a brightly colored river. And their voices in St. Paul's as depicting the children themselves being elevated to the heavens with Christ, leaving behind everyone else. This really gets into the heart of ascension theology. When Christ came down at the point of his incarnation, he took on human flesh. But when he returned, he didn't leave that behind him. He returned fully man, fully God. He returned to his father in a different form to that which he had left. And so as many have written, at the point of the ascension, Christ brings manhood up into the Godhead. And his humanity at the point of the ascension tells us, one day you will be exalted with Christ. And you can be greatly encouraged by that. You can prostrate yourself, humble yourself. You can live a servant's life, knowing that the ascension speaks of your eventual exaltation. Number six, the ascension gives us purpose. We read that he parted from them, carried up into heaven. They worshipped him, and then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, why did the disciples return to Jerusalem? In part, at least, it was because Christ has given them a mission. We read earlier from Acts chapter 1, Luke's second account of the ascension, and there Jesus makes plain, I am ascending. I am no longer with you bodily. And so you have the baton. The job is now yours. I'm passing it on to you. And what are you to do? You are to preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, going out from there to Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. That's the mission statement that they're given in Acts chapter 1. And the book of Acts follows exactly that plan. The gospel does indeed get proclaimed in Jerusalem. It then spills out into Judea and Samaria and eventually it goes to the ends of the earth. The mission worked. Why? Because they went back. Have you ever considered the fact that you sit here this morning in Christ? Because they went back to Jerusalem. They were faithful to the task. And notice, they didn't go begrudgingly. They didn't hesitate. They didn't go full of fear, knowing that most likely persecution would confront them. Luke says they went joyfully. It's as if they're running. They're racing back to Jerusalem to begin the work that Christ has given them. Knowing that Christ is not resting, but he is with them, interceding for them. He is now established as the head of the church and he is giving gifts to men so as to serve one another. What else would you do but give yourself to the task? And so the disciples go about preaching immediately, going back to Jerusalem. And it should not be the case. There is no reason why generations to come should not sit where you are sat this morning and say, I am here in Christ. 
because so-and-so shared the gospel with me. There is no reason why there shouldn't be many that come after us that look back to this generation and say, I am here because so-and-so was faithful in the nursery explaining Christ to me. I am faithful because they were in the high school ministry and they took me to one side. They told me the gospel. They gave hours of their lives to shape me, to disciple me. My understanding of Jesus comes directly from this person. See, the work isn't done. The gospel went to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts, but that's not to say the work is done. And yet we get so distracted. There are so many Christian sloths. Don't be a sloth. God has called you to a work, a ministry. Do you understand when God caused you to be born again, he gave you a new heart that was completely wired The DNA was configured so that you would have a love for God, a love for his word, and a love for his people. That's the heart that God gave you as he caused you to be born again. And the love that you have for God's people is not an abstract love, but it is defined by a desire to serve them, to serve one another and so advance the mission of the gospel. To think that you might work against that inclination to think that you might put energy and effort so as to work against the supernatural inclination that God has given you in your heart to be all about the church is a tragedy. To think that you might strive to content yourself with lesser things, to say subconsciously or consciously, I'm not going to be about the task of furthering the gospel. I'll let my time pass. And there'll be no testimony to my life of having advanced the gospel. To think that that might be something you do would lead to only issues of discontent, of apathy, of wondering what it is you're meant to be about. The point is clear. Jesus has handed on the baton. And he calls us to strive to keep furthering the gospel. Some through stacking chairs. Some through serving refreshments, some to preach and teach, others to counsel, evangelize, disciple. The list goes on and on and on. But he has given you gifts in order to serve the church and the mission is on. And when you align your life with the task that God has given us, then you'll find fulfillment. Then you find purpose. Then you find great encouragement. Your encouragement must not be derived from that which comes immediately around you, your circumstances. The world is broken. It is full of sin. You cannot set your contentment in your circumstances. But when you say, I'm going to be all about this task, now you'll be content. Now you'll flourish. You'll be continually encouraged. Number seven, and lastly, The ascension informs our worship. After worshiping him, the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Where else would they be? They went back to Jerusalem, and if ever you wondered, where's so-and-so, the answer would always be, oh, he's in the temple worshiping. Where else would they be? They understand it. They see the ascension in its proper place. One way you can think about the ascension, just as the resurrection validates Jesus' work on the cross, 
So the ascension validates his resurrection. When we look at the the risen Lord Jesus, we can say, I know that the cross worked. The payment has been made. He has conquered death. The cross does exactly what it says it would do. When you look at the ascension, you can say, I know he rose from the grave. I know that Christ was resurrected because now he reigns on high. He's ascended. So what the ascension does, it forms the final brushstroke to Luke's gospel narrative. It is the final piece of the puzzle. It's like Luke gets a line and underscores everything that he's written with the ascension. He's saying to us, there is nothing more to write. There's nothing more to say. The gospel has been achieved. It's been accomplished. There's nothing more. There's nothing required of you. I'm not asking you to make a contribution, says Luke. Look at the ascension and know it is finished. And the only thing for you to do now is to respond in worship. As you meditate upon the ascension, the glorious exaltation of Christ, his ongoing ministry for you to this present hour, as you understand that he reigns as head of the church, he gives gifts, as you understand that he is one day coming back, and as you understand that his ascension informs our worship, the only proper response is, where else would I be? Here we are again on the Lord's day. Where else would I be? Morning and evening, for as often as the doors are open, I'm going to gather in the Lord's house with the Lord's people because the gospel has been written. May that be true of our lives. May we look to the ascended and exalted Christ and be greatly encouraged. Pray with me now. Our Father, we praise you this morning for the ascension of the risen Lord Jesus. Crucified, risen, and ascended. We praise you for all of the theology that springs from his exaltation, the truth of his return, that indeed everything is going according to plan that we are empowered as mediators of him, that he intercedes for us. Father, that one day we will be exalted at his side, that we have a purpose, and that now we are free to worship. Please, we ask that you would embed deep in our hearts the comfort that the ascension offers to us, and we would be found faithful getting on with the mission, worshipping you, because we continually set before us the exalted Christ. We pray all these things in his matchless name. Amen. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. Look around. Does the world make sense to you right now? One of the great things about reading the Bible is that once you start reading it, you learn that the world has always been out of control. Wars, exiles, bad leaders, worse leaders, and even worse leaders. This is not something new, and the Bible's clear about that. Yet we keep looking for a new president or new leader to solve our problems. How about if there already is a leader that is ruling, that you can follow, who's got the whole world in his hand? If you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ and how he can change your life, come to our website, 
TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts for our entire audio archive of this and previous messages. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're in the area and don't have a home church, come worship with us this Easter Sunday at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll be listening on Monday. We've got a new series for you titled, Will You Follow the One True God? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.